On today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue with the why not questions about what is reasonable to believe. Today, we'll turn our attention to Judaism. It was once the true faith. The Jewish people were the chosen people of God. They were given favors. They were rescued. They were given an undying sacred covenant. So if this was all once true, why is it not still true today? Why is it wrong to practice Judaism if it was accepted by God, who we all know is truth and truth does not change? So how do we square these two seemingly contradictory truths at the same time? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com slash apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to, as well as all of the resources we're posting. But if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father McGilvery for episode 41 of the Apologetic Series. Well, Father McGilvery, it's great to have you back as always. You are here for us for the penultimate, am I using that word right, Father? Penultimate, second to last? Yeah, that'd be right. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, penultimate episode of the Apologetic Series. And uh, I saw you just uh, a week or so ago down in uh, Phoenix. You celebrated our Sunday Mass. So it was good to see you. Didn't have a chance to say hello then, but we're making up for it here. Indeed, indeed, yeah. So how, how was your visit? You have, uh, you have family in Phoenix, is that right? I do indeed. Uh, so I visited my parents and then also my sister. Um, she's married and has several kids. So I got to visit them as well. Very good. Great. Well, I hope your break was relaxing. I know Christmas and Easter are always hectic times for the priests. So you all take your vacations a little bit after. So able to get some rest and relaxation. Yes. No, it was very nice. Uh, I certainly appreciate the desert, especially now that I live up in Canada where we have <laughs> nothing but snow. It's nice to see some dryness and warmth and cacti. All of that is is a welcome sight. Yeah. All those plants that just want to kill you. Yeah. yeah Every now exactly. and then, it's nice. Uh, well, speaking of living in a desert, I don't know if that, I don't know if that works very well. There's a transition. There's a transition. That works. <laughs> We're going to be talking about Judaism today, Father. And with all of these episodes, we've we've already talked about uh, paganism. We've talked about Islam. We've talked about Mormonism. We're we're looking at specifically these religions, not to be jerks about it, not to say that they're awful, not to say that they're bad people, but just to say they do not have the truth. Uh, where do you want to start with this investigation of Judaism in, sp in specific, Father? Yes. Well, um, there's something unique about Judaism because unlike all those other religions that you just mentioned, uh, Judaism is the only false religion that used to be true. Uh, <laughs> so uh, with the others, they never really had a claim to the truth, whereas Judaism, um, understood in a broad sense, uh, well, it used to be the true religion, in fact. It is a religion, right. therefore, which contains authentic um, revelations made by God to uh, certain members of the human race. And once upon a time, to be a Jew was to be a member of the true religion. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, it wouldn't be any surprise to say that, um, well, uh, the reason why it's not true anymore is that Judaism, as um, as the religion of what we call the Old Testament, um, it was a religion looking forward to a future Messiah who would bring uh, redemption, who would mean, bring the means of obtaining forgiveness of, of one's sins and entrance into eternal life. And so as a religion looking forward to a coming Redeemer, it was truthful. But now that that Redeemer has come, um, the that same religion which continues to look forward to someone who in fact has already come and to reject the one who has come 
uh, it's no longer the true religion. So, in other words, that, that's a big uh, difference from the other false religions that we've discussed. Um, and uh, this is a little bit more subtle because we have to say that, you know, in itself, if, if we consider Judaism as it used to be, um, we're not going to brand it as as a false religion containing um, absurdities or things that are, uh, let's say, contra-historical or anything like that. Um, the, the whole problem with Judaism, to kind of anticipate our final conclusion, is that um, it, it's a religion which was true looking forward, um, but now, uh, looking back, it's, it's no longer true insofar as it implies a rejection of the promised Messiah. Sure. Yeah, that does make it distinct from what we have been looking at. Um, Mm -hmm. Before we get into talking about why not Judaism, again, we're trying not to make it super negative, but but Mm -hmm. getting into that point, we need to kind of define some terms and and also uh, look at some sources. What have you been looking at, Father, to? Because I I assume you're not a a Jewish historian uh, by trade. You are a Catholic priest by trade. So uh, where have you been getting this information that you're going to be chatting with us about today? All right. Well, um, so it's true that um, Judaism is not my specialty. Um, I, uh, this is not a subject of, of deep expertise. And so I prefer to simply refer those who are interested in this subject to various sources. Um, obviously, the thing to start with, um, if there are any Jews listening to this podcast, um, I would would warmly encourage them to read the Gospels, to read the, the writings of the New Testament, um, if they have not done so already, because there's really nothing better adapted to um, help them understand why Jesus is the um, the Messiah than simply to read the the writings of those who who knew him uh, or who knew those who knew him and who um, who worked to try to convert the the Jews of of his time. Um, so for for those who are, are Jews or even for Christians, for Catholics who have never read the writings of the New Testament, um, the Gospels, the letters of St. Paul, read them by all means. And um, But for, for Christians, for Catholics, I would also emphasize, um, read the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus. Um, those, those books are so fundamental. Um, we, uh, as Christians, as Catholics, we tend to think that the Old Testament is simply old news um, and that we would be, do better to spend our time uh, focusing on the Gospels, the epistles of St. Paul. Um, and while it's true that the writings of the, the New Testament are even richer and, and more important than those of the Old uh, we should not neglect the writings of the Old Testament, especially because, um, to a great extent, we, we simply won't be able to understand the depth and the, the riches of the New Testament um, if we don't read the Old. Uh, I think it's St. Augustine who says that the um, the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is revealed or clarified in the New. Um, yeah. So so I would hardly encourage that. Um, now... Uh, besides scriptural sources, um, it's important to point out that there are some ancient Jewish authors who are very frequently cited because uh, they were more or less contemporaneous with our Lord Jesus Christ. They gave, um, therefore, uh, let's say they give us a, a close-up look at what Jewish culture was like at the time of our Lord. Um, and they're often cited by uh, not only you know by by modern Jews but also by by Christian authors. Um, I would cite Flavius Josephus, who was a, a Jewish historian of the first century, um, who actually fought against the Romans in the Jewish revolt of, of seventy A.D. 
Um, and later, well, he gave himself up to the Romans. He, he became an advisor of the Roman emperor Vespasian. And he's particularly well known for two of his works, Jewish Antiquities, uh, I'm sorry, Antiquities, and uh, The Wars of the Jews, which recounts in detail the, the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, he's a very interesting author. Um, particularly those, those Catholics who read Don Garanger, they're, they're familiar with his name because Don Garanger in the liturgical year, he often cites uh, these accounts of, of Josephus. Um, okay. Also, around the same time, there's Philo of Alexandria, who is a Jewish Neoplatonic philosopher, um, obviously in Alexandria, Egypt, that hence the name. Um, so he's another very famous uh, source of, of Jewish thought, philosophy, theology. And then finally, um, moving forward in history, um, another famous Jewish author is uh, Moses Maimonides or something like that. Um, so he was a, a Jewish philosophy philosopher, I'm sorry, of the 12th century, uh, born in Cordoba, which is part of uh, Spain, which was under Islamic control at the time. Um, he died in Egypt. And um, he's probably the most important Jewish philosopher and theologian of the Middle Ages. Um, he's often quoted by St. Thomas Aquinas, in fact, uh, under the name of Rabbi Moses, um, especially where St. Thomas comments on the uh, the literal or figurative sense of, of various Old Testament passages, he often references uh, Maimonides or Rabbi Moses, uh, as he calls him. So those are some Jewish authors. Um, for um, ancient Christian authors on this, this whole Jewish question, um, there's a work of St. Augustine uh, called in Latin De Catechizandis Rudibus, um, so on instructing simple people, that would be a kind of English paraphrase of the title. Um, and in it, so St. Augustine explains how to give catechism to adult converts, and he gives um, a kind of summary or an example of how to summarize um, Old Testament history and see it as a preparation for our Lord's coming. Um, it's, you know, a passage of maybe, I don't know, five or 10 pages where he just looks at all of Old Testament history in a very, um, how do you put it? Synthetic, uh, way, uh, with a, with a viewpoint, which, which gives you the picture of the whole. Um, and so that could be very useful in relation to this subject. Um, also for those who like to get into the kind of nitty gritty of theology, um, and who aren't afraid of, of, of wading into the deep, uh, there is St. Thomas Aquinas's um, commentary on the old law in the Summa Theologica, that's in the Prima Secunde, um, towards the end, where he, he has his famous treaty, uh, treatise on law. And then after that, he goes into the old law and then the new law. And his section on the, on the old law is very much worth reading, especially to anyone who has read um, the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, uh, Levit Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and has questions about that and why why these different laws, um, what's their meaning, literal and, and figurative, symbolic. Um, all of that is very well explained by St. Thomas. And I think that for if there, if there are any Jews listening to this, um, I think they would be astonished to see how profoundly um, a Christian theologian like St. Thomas Aquinas has been able to penetrate into the, the spirit of these fundamental books of the Old Testament. Um, now, in recent times, um, I'm going to recommend some works, which I, I haven't read all of them in their entirety myself. Um, so there's a caveat there, but um, Giuseppe Ricciotti, 
um, is a um, Italian historian. Um, he was a, a canon, um, which is a, a kind of priest who lives in community and says the, uh, the divine office in community in his, in his local church. Um, and um, he wrote a life of Christ, which is very famous, very well known. Um, but before writing that um, he wrote the history of Israel in two volumes um, and has a very scholarly work. Both of them are in fact. Um, and he has the advantage of combining uh, vast and profound historical knowledge. Um, he knows what the historical critics say. He knows the rationalist attacks against the historicity of the old and new testaments. And so he has very good answers to those criticisms and objections coming from modern rationalism. Um, and at the same time, it's just, it's a, it's a work worth reading for its own sake. Um, the life of Christ is, is good, not merely for scholarly, scholarly purposes, but even as spiritual reading. Um, so he's very, very good. Um, okay. More contemporary. So those people who are living today, um, I highly recommend um, the writings and lectures of Dr. Brandt Petrie. Uh, I think that father Ruder has mentioned him before in these uh, conferences for apologetics, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Okay, yep. you have there we go. Introduction to the Old Testament. Is that is that Fantastic. what you have right there? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I have had nothing else impact my sorry to take it over. I, I apologize, but no, I no, love no. Please. this book so much. It has helped yeah. me understand scripture more than anything else I've ever done. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's it is fantastic. Um I've started reading it, haven't gotten all the way through it by any means, but it's, it's very not good. Cheap. Um, it's like sixty it, bucks, yeah. but it's true. Well, if you like Kindles, I know this probably makes me a modernist uh, liberal priest, but I read most of my books on a Kindle and uh, it's slightly Fair. cheaper on the Kindle. Okay. <laughs> and it's also yeah, much more tip. compact. That's a good tip. Thank you. Um, Sorry. I so interrupted that's, you. That's, Go ahead, Father. Yeah, no problem. That's, 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 um, that's a really interesting source. Um, uh, extremely well done. And then, um, also he has lots of, uh, conferences that he's given at seminaries at universities, um, which you can download and listen to. They also are not cheap. Um, I recommend, um, a lecture course of his called, uh, the old Testament, a historical and theological journey through Jewish scripture. Um, and that I think he, he gave that series of conferences in 2010, approximately. Um, but uh, it's really, really fascinating. Um, it doesn't necessarily go into in, in some areas. It goes into more detail, I think, than that introduction to the uh, Old Testament. And in, in many other areas, it simply skips over things because it's it's these these lectures are focusing on uh, kind of the highlights of the Old Testament. Um, but if you enjoy listening to audio, it's really, really good. Only you have to be willing to pay like a hundred dollars to purchase the course. Right. So, so, um, the, those, those would be my main, uh, recommendations. Um, there is something which was recommended to me, which I haven't read, um, which is a, a book by Aiton Barr. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Um, called refuting rabbinic objections to Christianity and messianic prophecies. Um, so if I understand correctly, basically Aiton Barr, um, this is a, He's a, um, he's a Jew, um, who studied, uh, scripture as his, um, I don't know, major in, in university. He got a PhD, I think in scriptural studies. And in the course of doing those studies, um, he was converted to Christianity. Uh, he's, he's what's known as a Messianic Jew or was at the time. And then he, he's kind of wandered into Calvinist uh, theology. So I'm not recommending him for his theology. Um, but uh, because 
uh, well, his book could be interesting for precisely the point of, of, um, answering rabbinic objections to messianic prophecies. So where there are prophecies in the Old Testament that, that Christians have always said, this points clearly to Jesus Christ. And the Jews uh, have, you know, apparently put forward answers to that saying, no, this is why it doesn't refer to Christ. Well, um, this book may be helpful in, in countering those rabbinic objections. Okay. All right. That is fascinating. That's some uh, background information that people can dive into a little bit more if they're interested in this topic. So thank you for that, Father. Uh, yeah, always good to just kind of know where your information, I mean, I trust you and all, yeah. but <laughs> it's always good to have the have the sources uh, directly. Sure. Um, again, before we start to dive into specifically the beliefs and the objections to Judaism, um, can we do a little bit of vocab because we're going to be using some terms that maybe some Catholics, the majority of our audience may not be as familiar with uh, things like what do we talk about when we are actually talking about a Jew versus a Semite versus an Israelite? Are those all the same? Are they different? So can we go through that a little bit, Father? Gladly. And, and you know, I really realized that this, this kind of clarification of terms was necessary um, back when I was at my previous assignment. Um, in New Hamburg, Our Lady Mount Carmel Academy. And I was in charge of the lower academy. And I'd go in once every week to um, uh, stop by each class for five, 10 minutes and give a little talk to the kids. And I decided to do a series of talks on uh, Genesis and Exodus. And um, and I would usually, with children, the, the way to um, get them interested usually is to ask questions um, on really basic subjects that as an adult you would take for granted but you start to realize where the kids are when you, when you question them and ask them for their knowledge. And, and so I say to them, well, you know, what's a Hebrew? Um, what is a Jew? What does that mean? And of course the, you know, the kids don't know. Um, but also it's, it's not just kids, it's adults who don't know that either. Um, we're used to just throwing around the terms without really knowing distinctly what they mean. Um, so let's, let's clear up some of this vocabulary, Semite, Hebrew, Israelite, Jew. What, what's the difference there? Um, a Semite, we speak of Semitic peoples, anti-Semitism, all of that. Um, the, the word Semite simply, simply means a descendant of Sem or Shem, depending on your, your translation of the Old Testament. Um, and he was one of the three sons of Noah. Um, and particularly, he's the one that Abraham came from later on in, in um, Old Testament history. Um, so Sem is one of the three sons of Noah. Um, some people identify him with Melchizedek, who shows up later in Old Testament history. That's another topic. Um, but Semite just means anyone descending from Sem. And so that includes the uh, Hebrews uh, or Israelites, um, the Jews. They're all Semites, but that also includes other peoples like the Arabs, um, and um, other, you know, inhabitants of of um, the the Near East. Um, so, Semite technically is a broader term that includes more than just the Jewish people. Okay. Um, next, Hebrew. Uh, that that word too comes from one of the ancestors of Abraham, Heber. Um, Heber was a great grandson of Sem, and um, uh, once again, an ancestor of Abraham and. Hebrew refers, first of all, to the language spoken by the Jewish people, um, you know, historically before the, their Babylonian exile. Um, so Hebrew is their language, um, but it's technically a language which derives from Heber, who's one of the, the ancestors of Abraham. Um, 
But then when we speak of the Hebrew people, usually that in practice, that's used synonymously with, with the Israelites. Um, uh, so let's move on to Israelite then. <laughs> um, okay. We're kind of moving down the genealogical tree. So we have Sem. Later on, uh, his, his great-grandson is, is Heber, from which we get Hebrew. Um, then we get uh, much later, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, Jacob um, has a second name, which is Israel, which means something like strong against God. From the episode where Jacob wrestled with the, the angel and, and pinned him down and won't let him go until the angel gave him his blessing. Um, and so the angel said, from now on, your name will be Israel, which means strong against God. Um, and so Israelite, that simply means a son of Jacob, um, someone descended from any of the 12 tribes of Jacob. And then finally, we have the term Jew. Um, the term Jew actually derives from Judah, who is one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Um, and he's uh, the ancestor of King David. King David will come from the tribe of Judah. Um, and the tribe of Judah received its inheritance in the southern part of Canaan, um, which includes the city of Jerusalem. And um, to go briefly into a little bit of Old Testament history, um, when the northern 10 tribes split off from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin down south, um, resulting in a split kingdom. There, there was a northern kingdom, which was called the kingdom of Israel, um, and a southern kingdom, which was called the kingdom of Judah. Um, this, this happened under King Roboam, um, who's, uh, so you have King David who ruled over all the Israelites, uh, King Solomon as well. Uh, the, the kingdom was united at that time, but then Solomon's son Roboam, when he came to the throne, um, he gave some pretty unpopular answers to some demands that the people were making of him. And that resulted in a, in a schism. Uh, and basically the 10 Northern tribes split off and created their own kingdom, leaving just um, uh, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin down South with some Levites uh, to form the kingdom of, of Judah, um, which continued to be ruled over by, by ancestors or sorry, by uh, descendants of David. Um, and so then in the year 722 BC, um, the Assyrians came and took the 10 tribes of Israel captive. Um, and uh, unfortunately, they, they never really were able to go back to their, their land. Um, and then about a, 150 years later, roughly, around 586 BC, um, the uh, Babylonian Empire came and the Babylonians took the kingdom of Judah captive. Um, now, um, only the, the kingdom of Judah was able eventually to return to Canaan or, or Palestine. Um, only they were able to return to their land and repopulate it, uh, whereas the 10 northern tribes were scattered uh, among the various empires and, and they're known as the lost tribes of Israel. They never were able to make it back. And so that's why we tend now to take uh, Jewish, that is someone related to the tribe of, of Judah, we take that as something synonymous with, with uh, Israelite or Hebrew. It's because when, when the, um, the kingdom of Judah was finally allowed to go back to um, Canaan and, and repopulate it and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, um, they were practically all um, Israelites from the tribe of Judah. And so they, they became known as Jews and Jewish became synonymous with that, that people which inhabited the, the promised land and, and where our, our Jesus Christ, uh, you know, when Jesus Christ came, he was, um, he came among people who are almost all from the tribe of Judah. Interesting. Okay. Huh. Yeah. Um, 
Now, on that topic, um, we still have a division of um, the Holy Lands. Well, let's let's actually clarify that first. So I've been talking about Canaan. I mentioned Palestine. Those terms are used synonymously for the most part. Uh, Canaan is the original name of the promised land. Um, it was in, inhabited by peoples known as uh, by people known as Canaanites. Um, and uh, but in fact, the, there wasn't just one people inhabiting it. There were many different tribes uh, or or small nations that were all at war with one another. And and um, when the Israelites um, came in during the the history of the the Exodus and and under the leadership of Joshua, um, they successfully exterminated or put to flight many of those tribes. Others lingered on for quite some time and continued to uh, wage war against them. Um, among these tribes were the Philistines, who in, in, who inhabited Canaan along the border of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and um, with time, the the term Philistine was deformed and and became. Um, it started to be called Palestine. Um, that's a term I, I believe, which the Roman empire brought in. They started to call that whole territory Palestine, but it's just a deformation of the term Philistine. Um, mm. and so in common parlance, Palestine, Canaan, the promised land, those all refer to that, that section of land, um, in the near East, uh, just along the coast of the, um, of the, um, the Eastern border of the Mediterranean sea, where you have Jerusalem, uh, the river Jordan, um, all of these, um, places, which are, which are so familiar to us from old Testament history, that land is called Palestine or Canaan. Okay. Um, now that land was, um, after the Babylonian exile, after the Jews come back and repopulate that land, um, it still was broken up into different sections, um, and we see this in the New Testament. Um, the southern section of that land, including Jerusalem, is known as Judea, um, another term which, which has to do with the tribe of Judah. Um, Judea is basically the traditional territory of the kingdom of, of Judah, more or less. Um, north of Judea, you have Samaria, um, and the, the Samaritans are actually um, the result of a, of a mix of some Israelite people um, because when the Assyrians um, captured the, the northern tribes of Israel and, and put them into exile, um, presumably they were mostly concerned with with um, removing the powerful and influential people, but the, the poor people, some of them might perhaps have been allowed to remain um, to cultivate the land. I don't know. Um, but also the Assyrians empire ended up sending, you know, other nations to come populate that part of the land so that it wouldn't be overridden by wild animals and, and whatnot to keep it in, in, in decent condition. Um, and so there came to be a mix of peoples, part is Israel and part, uh, pagan. Um, they mixed and also their customs mixed. Um, and so the Samaritans, they, they, uh, as a people, they kept, um, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, um, but rejected all the others. Um, and instead of uh, offering sacrifice, worshiping in, in the temple in Jerusalem, they worshiped on Mount Gerizim, if I recall correctly. Um, so they had these religious differences from the Jews and were regarded as schismatics and even the heretics. Um, that's Samaria then. It's, it's the portion of uh, Palestine north of Judea. And then even north of Samaria, you have Galilee. Um, which was populated um, by Jews, not not by Samaritans. So, so the people living in Galilee were religiously uh, in agreement with those in Judea. 
Um, and uh, Galilee is, is so the, the northernmost part of that uh, Jewish territory um, where Nazareth is, where, where our Lord uh, spent his infancy. Okay. Well, that's fascinating. This is, um, there. yeah, you hear about all these different areas, all these different uh, locations. And, and if we can find a good map to maybe overlay while we're talking about some of this, uh, that would probably be helpful just to get some, some geography sure. uh, along with it. Yeah. Um, all right, so those are kind of the geographic areas. Mm. Again, let's look at a few more terms. And again, we're not we're not quite good. This is all part of sort of an introduction, so that we can all be on the same page about things. But um, can we look at some of the religious terms? Um, we we hear about things like rabbi, synagogue, Talmud. What are all of these things for those who may not be familiar with it? Yes. Yeah, so, um, uh, well, let's start actually with rabbi, although that might be. Um, departing a little bit from our, our order in the notes. Um, rabbi is simply Hebrew for master. Um, it means a teacher. And uh, basically, the function of uh, rabbi um, really derives from the Babylonian captivity um, because when the Jews were deplaced by the Babylonian Empire, um, and uh, could no longer offer sacrifice in Jerusalem. Um, the way that they practiced their religion changed uh, rather dramatically because the Jewish religion, the Mosaic um, law, it was all centered around sacrifice, but sacrifice could only be offered in the place um, which was approved by God, which, which was in fact the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and so once they were exiled and could no longer be in the temple, they could no longer offer sacrifice. And so there had to be some kind of substitute for that um, temple and liturgical related cult, uh, sacrifice related cult. Um, and so the way that they maintained their religious life was by meeting in uh, synagogues, which are Jewish houses of prayer, but not of sacrifice. Um, and um, basically in the synagogue, someone had to lead the prayer service. Someone had to um, expound upon the meaning of the scriptures. And uh, there was no official position. Um, there was no hierarchy for this, this role. Like there was a priestly hierarchy with a high priest and others who all descended from, from Aaron. Um, you know, you had to be born into a certain um, family. You had to have a certain genealogy to be able to be a priest, but to be a rabbi, or a master or doctor of the law. Um, you just had to have sufficient learning and be recognized as such by the Jewish community. Um, so it's, it's simply a title of respect for teachers or learned men. Um, and then, you know, after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple, um, because Offering sacrifice became, you know, permanently an impossibility. Um, the the role of the Jewish rabbis became more and more prominent. Uh, it became an official function, and uh, so now, although there are, you know, still plenty of Jews who, um, you know, without being able to strictly prove it, they 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 claim to descend from Aaron and therefore to belong to the priestly uh, class. Their function in Jewish life is very minimal. 
Um, there's very little that they can do. They just, you know, they, they, they offer some blessings that other Jewish people can't, uh, they have to observe some extra laws about, you know, not going in cemeteries and things like that. Um, but in practice, their role is very, very minimal. Whereas the role of the rabbi, um, has become central in modern Judaism. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, um, if I can then just transition quickly to talk about the terms referring to Jewish scriptures. Okay. Because the, the role of the rabbi is to explain um, the scriptures, to interpret them, uh, to teach Jewish law. Um, we have some terms which probably people are vaguely familiar with, like Torah. Um, the term Torah in Hebrew, it simply means instruction or law. Um and usually when we speak of the, the Torah, in the strict sense, that, that refers to the Pentateuch, that is to say the first five books of the, um, of the um, Jewish Bible or the Old Testament, which um, are attributed to Moses um, by both Jewish and, and Christian tradition. Um, and so they contain primarily the law given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, um, and then, you know, reiterated in Deuteronomy. Um, uh, so it's the law, the law of Moses. That's, that's the meaning of Torah of the Torah. And it refers to those five books, the first five books of the old Testament. Um, but the term has several meanings. That's the strictest meaning, but then in a broader sense, it can refer to the entire Jewish Bible. Um, there is another term for their Bible, which is more exact. Um, it's called the Tanakh. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, it's actually an acronym, um, which stands for the, the Torah, uh, the Nevim, which are the, the, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, or the Psalms and other wisdom books of the Old Testament. So the Jews would divide their, their uh, scriptures into three parts, the, the law or Torah in the strict sense, um, and then the prophets and then other writings, uh, primarily the Psalms and then, you know, um, um, histories of, of holy people like Job and so on, um, or Tobias and then, um, and then, uh, other writings, wisdom, wisdom books, especially. Um, so that's the Tanakh. And then finally, so that's the, the kind of intermediate sense of Torah. Torah, Torah can be a synonym of Tanaka or the entire collection of, of Jewish holy writings, um, which more or less corresponds to our Old Testament. And then finally, in the broadest sense, Torah can mean all of traditional Jewish doctrine, even uh, unwritten you know, uh, traditions and things like that. Um, now, Torah, there's another word like Torah, but which is not not all the same thing. It's the Talmud, um, which in Hebrew means doctrine or learning. Um, the Talmud is of later origin than the Torah. Um, it's basically, uh, well, it's composed of two parts, which are known as the Mishnah and the Jamara. Uh, the Mishnah is a traditional oral law. Um, supplementing, uh, expanding the written law of Moses, um, which was committed to writing around the second, uh, around 280. Um, and then the Jamara is a body of uh, traditional Jewish legends, uh, which serves as a commentary on the Mishnah. Um, 
so as a whole, then the Talmud was was is basically like an encyclopedia of anecdotes, ritualistic opinions, and legends compiled between the second and sixth centuries. Um, and unlike the the Torah or the Tanakh, the, the 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 traditional Jewish scriptures, the Talmud, which comes later after after our Lord Jesus Christ, um, it's colored by a hostile attitude towards Christianity. Um, so. Um, we, we wouldn't have any problem with the Tanaka or, or, or Jewish scriptures, but the Talmud, on the other hand, has things which are, are certainly ob- objectionable um, from a Christian perspective. Okay. Um, yeah, go ahead. No, that's fine. It, it, was, it was interesting. So there's, um, but within the Talmud, there's also, this is, this is kind of the, um, the law book that has been also added onto. If it, is that right? Or, because I, I know that, right. that that Moses basically gave, obviously God gave uh, Moses the Ten Commandments, but then there were, I think, 613 laws in total that Moses gave to uh, to the chosen people to follow. Mm-hmm. The Talmud is something even beyond that, right? Yes, uh, for sure. So, um, <laughs> yeah, the, the the laws that we find in the Pentateuch and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, to us, uh, let's say, to we who are so used to the simplicity of the new law, the the, the 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 you know our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, He gave probably a handful of explicit commandments, things like mm-hmm. you have to you know eat my flesh and drink my blood, and uh, you know, um, well, obviously you have the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. Um, but, but it's very, very simple, very reduced in number, um, the amount of, of explicit commandments that our Lord promulgated. Um, so to us, the, the law of Moses seems very complicated, uh, even convoluted. But in fact, that's nothing compared to the whole body of, of oral traditions, which uh, supplemented the law of Moses and which uh, was written down as, as the Mishnah, um, and even Jesus Christ himself makes reference to this um, when he's attacking the Pharisees for, you know, making null the, the, the law of God by their their human traditions. Um, you know, he criticizes them for putting so much importance on exterior washings, um, uh, you know, saying to them that what defiles a man is not what what goes into him, but what comes out of him, uh, because, it's, you know, a man's words uh, reveal the thoughts of his heart. And um, so, so our Lord, in many instances, he um, criticizes the exaggerated legalism of the Pharisees or or kind of um, um, experts in Jewish law of his time. Um, And he criticizes some of these, these traditions as well, um, which these accretions, which had had built up um, and which were sometimes taken as more important than the law of Moses itself. Okay. Very interesting. Um, but speaking of accretions, uh, one last word before we move on past this section. Um, uh, so Targum, uh, Targum um, is originally a, a translation of a passage of the Jewish Bible from Hebrew into Aramaic to be read in the synagogue because when the 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 tribe of the sorry the kingdom of Judah um, was taken captive by the Babylonians. Um, in Babylon, in, in the Babylonian empire, the commercial language, the language spoken, um, everywhere 
by many different nations was Aramaic, um, kind of like uh, Greek, Koine Greek would become the, the lingua franca, the common tongue later on in the, the Greek and Roman empires. Um, so at the time it was Aramaic, which was the diplomatic uh, universal language. Um, and so many of the, most of the Jews, especially the, the, the less educated, um, they became less and less familiar with their own tongue, with Hebrew, and they started to speak primarily Aramaic. And uh, th- that was so true that that progressed to such a point that it became necessary um, after reading the scriptures aloud in Hebrew in the synagogues, it became necessary to give a translation so that everyone could understand. Um, and so those translations uh, were known as Targums and uh, they eventually were written down. And with time, they became more and more loose, more like a paraphrase, not a, a word for word tra- translation. Um, but more of a paraphrase, kind of like the, the Knox uh, version of the English uh, Bible, right. <laughs> which sometimes I don't know if it's, it's a translation or just a paraphrase, but that's another, another subject. Right. Um, so, and then even more than just a paraphrase, they started to add, um, you know, commentary interpretations. And so sometimes um, this word Targum may come up when we're discussing um, Jewish interpretations of parts of the Old Testament, especially Messianic prophecies. Um, often, you know, Christian Catholic apologetics will appeal to a Jewish tar- targum um, to say, look, even you Jews, um, you've, you've traditionally interpreted this passage as Messianic. Here's your own interpretation of it and, and see how that fits with, with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where the word targum becomes important in, in Christian apologetics with Jews. Okay. Fascinating. Um, and then before we get into the modern beliefs of, of well, the beliefs of modern Judaism, uh, can we just do a, a, a really quick synopsis of about, oh, I don't know, 4,000 years or so of, of, uh, of, Jew, of Jewish history uh, in the Old Testament? Yes, uh, I think this is necessary to really understand what we're, we're talking about, but I'll try and make it brief. Um, We've already talked a little bit about uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, about the uh, divided kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, kingdom of Judah, the Assyrian captivity, Babylonian captivity. Let's just back up a little bit. So, in fact, if we start with the the first book of of the Bible, um, the Genesis, it's a history from the very beginning of the world and of the human race. and the first 11 chapters of Genesis pass through, you know, probably thousands and thousands of years um, in a very short space of time without attempting to give exact dates. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really just like an, an overview or um, kind of an eagle's eye view of, of the very beginning of history, um, which recounts creation, um, the, the creation specifically of the first man, Adam, and of his, his wife, Eve, um, the fall which uh, the fall of man is really what sets the stage for everything that will come afterwards. And especially for uh, the promise of a redeemer, it's because Adam disobeys the commandment that God gave him um, and eats the forbidden fruit that he loses not only for himself, but for all of his posterity. Um, The original justice uh, in which he was born, as well as, you know, the, what we call in Catholic theology, the preternatural gifts, such as immortality, um, if he had been able to always eat of the fruit of life, he would not have died. Um, and, and so all these gifts 
um, freedom from suffering, um, control over one's own passions, um, you know, uh, what we call infused knowledge. So he wasn't subject to ignorance like like we are when we're born into the world, completely ignorant of everything. Um, these gifts he lost for himself and for his, his children. Um, and this made necessary the the promise of a messiah of of that is to say of a savior a redeemer someone who would uh bring back to mankind the the benefits that were lost uh through adam's sin um and so that really that sets up everything which is to follow and and especially what we call the new testament which is the the history of the coming of the the promised redeemer and it's not only Christians who see um, in the history of the fall and then what God says to the serpent afterwards about putting enmities between him and, and the woman and his seed and the woman's seed, um, that, that has been interpreted even by Jews uh, as a prophecy referring to a coming Messiah or Redeemer. Um, so already we see the Jewish religion um, from the beginning of, the, of this revelation of, of the first book of the Jewish Bible. We see that it's a religion which is looking forward to something great which is to come, um, a, a promised redeemer. Um, and that's going to be one of the central problems with Judaism as we move forward is, is that, you know, according to them, the, the redeemer has not come. They're still waiting. Um, when is this going to happen? Um, we think that we have an answer to that question that has already happened and, and sure. it's Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the central issue, obviously. Um, so there's that um, after the, the, the fall of Adam, um, you know, many, many generations pass. Uh, the wickedness of man becomes so great that God wipes them out with a flood, except for Noah and his family. And Noah is like a second Adam, a uh, second father of the human race, um, because he's been found just in God's eyes. And so God preserves him, spares him. Um, he, he's saved uh, from the waters of the flood in an ark, which is like a figure of the church. Um, Noah is, is like a second Adam. And in that way, he's like a figure of the promised Messiah um, who will himself be a second Adam and will restore uh, the, the life of grace to the human race. Um, and then after, after Noah, we have generations that pass and a, a key element in this history of the Old Testament um, is the Tower of Babel, um, where uh, you know the, the, the children of Noah, his his uh, descendants, they want to uh, make a name for themselves and build a tower that reaches even to heaven. And God, to foil their plans, he um, he divides them in their language so that they no longer understand each other, and they can no longer work together, and they're forced in this way to split apart. Um, and we see there with that history of the, the Tower of Babel, um, the original division in the human race that now people are no longer of the same uh, tongue. They're no longer able to understand each other. And that's the beginning of this, this division, which is a profound problem. Um, now, Judaism is not going to answer um, of itself the problem of the fall, the problem of the division of the human race um, with, with uh, what happened at Babel. Um, that is an unresolved problem that will only be fixed with the coming of the Messiah and on Pentecost Sunday, in fact, um, where the, the Holy Ghost descends on the apostles sent by our Lord Jesus Christ um, in the, the form of, of, of tongues of fire and enables them to 
preach uh, Jesus, the promised redeemer in the, in the tongues of all the different nations. Um, it's kind of like, it's very interesting how the tower of Babel and then that um, cynical or upper room where the apostles are on, on Pentecost Sunday, they're like um, opposing images. Um, so you have the fall remedied by, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have the tower of Babel remedied by the descent of the Holy ghost on Pentecost. You already see these tensions being set up. Um, and which will only be resolved in the New Testament. Um, the Jews who reject that, they don't have a res- resolution to these things. And instead, Judaism will be a religion which is, which is um, you know, um, affected detrimentally by this division of the human race. So, um, yes, God starts to reveal himself to the human race. Um, one of the descendants of, uh, of Noah through Sam, through Heber, um, many generations later, it's Abraham. And by the time Abraham comes, not only is the human race divided, but with that division has been lost in great part, the, the primitive revelation that God made of himself to, um, to Adam, um, and, uh, this means that basically all of the great nations that, that inhabit the earth, they've forgotten this history of the fact that there's one God who created heaven and earth, who created the first man. Um, the, we have, we have one, one source, one origin, one, one heavenly father. Um, and this, this knowledge of God has been lost. And so by the time Abraham emerges on the scene, um, he's living in a polytheistic culture and there really is no, no monotheistic culture anywhere. Um, and so God begins, um, to prepare the definitive solution, which is the, the arrival of a redeemer who will make up for Adam's fault and bring the knowledge of the true God back to all the nations of the earth. Um, but, but, God doesn't bring the solution all at once. He prepares it um, and he prepares it through um, a kind of, you know, temporary solution, um, which is to say this religion um, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, um, which is destined just for uh, originally one family, uh, which develops into one people, but it's still one tiny people um, in comparison to all the peoples of the earth. And so this Jewish religion um which really, you know, starts in a significant way with Abraham, which is greatly developed under Moses. Um, it's still, while it is, it is a true religion. It is the, the true religion at the time. At the same time, it, it's marked by a great defect, which is the fact that it's confined to one people. And the the purpose of this religion, um, you know, starting with the, the revelations made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, it's to prepare the way for the Messiah who will bring the de- definitive solution. Um, because after all, if, if God is going to become man, um, and offer a sacrifice, um, which unlike the sacrifice of brute animals, um, is something so pleasing to the father, um, that it's able to make up for the sin of Adam and the sin of all, all men, all the sins of all mankind throughout all of history. Um, it's, uh, as we might see in theology and theological studies, it's really only God made man who's able to offer such a sacrifice. Um, but if God is to become man, he has to be born of someone. He has to be born into a specific people. Um, you know, uh, you can't simultaneously be born into um, the Hebrew people, into the, you know, uh, and the Egyptians, the Romans, the Greeks, um, 
the the Native Americans, um, there will necessarily be one people which is blessed by the coming of the Redeemer into into their family, into their nation. Um, and so it was necessary for God to prepare this. And he starts this preparation with Abraham saying to him, you're going to leave this polytheistic nation um, and you're going to go to a land that I'll show you, uh, the promised land. And I'm going to multiply your your offspring uh, like the, 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 the grains of, of sand on the seashore and like the, the stars in heaven. Um, and in your offspring, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Um, so, so that's very profound. These, these promises to Abraham, um, particularly the last one, it's, it's a blessing yeah. which comes through his offspring, but which is destined for all the peoples of the earth. Um, and we see that, uh, right there, we see that the, um, the Jewish religion as practiced through the, the, the observance of the Mosaic law, uh, the offering of sacrifices in the temple in Jerusalem, um, that cannot be a permanent uh, solution. That cannot be the blessing destined by God for all of mankind. Um, because by its very nature, we're looking at a religion which is confined to one people, um, where there's only one place where sacrifice can be offered. Um, we'll get into this more later, but, but, um, you know, how, how is this supposed to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth? Um, how are all the nations of the earth supposed to physically travel to Jerusalem and all offer their sacrifices in one temple? Um, there's, there's, um, and so we see, we see a completely different dynamic in, in this religion of the Old Testament. Uh, I know I'm getting ahead of myself here because this was just supposed to be a summary of Old Testament history. But um, with beginning with Abraham, what we see is God wishing to conserve belief in, in the true, in one true God, creator of heaven and earth, a spiritual being. He wants to, God wants to conserve these basic religious truths um, in, in one nation uh, he wants to preserve them from contagion, um, from being contaminated by the the other cultures, and so the the Jewish religion is a religion of conservation uh, of certain truths, of certain religious practices, and it's a religion which which thrives precisely by separating itself from the other nations of the world. Um, you know, as God says to Abraham, leave your nation, your country and go to the mm-hmm. land that I'll show you and don't make any pacts. Don't, don't enter into friendship with the other nations. You're going to drive them out. You're not going to let them, you know, live there with you. You're not going to let your, your children marry theirs. Um, the, the whole focus of this, this Jewish religion is to preserve um, the worship of the true God and hope in a future redeemer until he comes. And it's only with the coming of this promised redeemer that then the knowledge of the true God can be spread to all the other nations of the earth. Um, mm. So, um, and, and, and in the meantime, if we look at this history of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, later on Moses, um, David, we see that there are many things that are done which don't make sense, except insofar as they are a foreshadowing of something which is to come later. Um, one theme which recurs very frequently is that um, there are, you know, women who are who are sterile, who are not able to have children, and then uh, through prayer, through through hope in God, uh, eventually they obtain miraculously fertility, the, the ability to have a child as happened with, with Sarah, uh, Abraham's mm-hmm. wife. 
Um, if I recall well, the same thing was was true of Rebecca, certainly of, of Rachel, uh, Jacob's preferred wife. Then we have the mother of Samuel later on in Old Testament history. Um, it was barren until, you know, by prayer, she obtained the grace of fertility. All of that um, seems to be looking forward to the virgin birth of, of uh, you know, the, the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, miraculously conceiving our Lord um, without a human father. Um, also, we see the theme of you know, the younger child supplanting the elder one, um, you know, Abel is the, the younger son is, is just Cain is, is wicked and, and kills him out of envy. Um, but also we see the same dynamic with, um, you know, uh, Jacob and Esau. Um, there are many themes that are going to repeat themselves where, uh, or even among the, the, the sons of Joseph, um, Joseph has two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And uh, when Jacob is going to bless his sons, um, he crosses his hands so that he he gives the blessing of, um, he gives the birthright to the younger son and not the older one. Um, we see all these things. It's always the, the, the younger son who ends up getting the, the birthright, uh, the, 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 um, the special blessing of the firstborn, um, who ends up getting preferred to the older, as if God is saying, you know, look out, um, you are my chosen people. He's saying that to the Jews, but look out because there may be a people which will be younger than you, which will come to know me later than you and which I will prefer to you. Um, so, so anyways, um, we have all these, these indications that this religion is something which is, uh, temporary. It's a religion, which is not yet proselytic, which doesn't want to, which doesn't make efforts to spread itself throughout the whole world. Um, but it must ultimately be destined to proselytize because it's in Abraham's, uh, offspring that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Um, and it's, uh, it's a religion which includes many foreshadowings of future things. Um, we'll talk later about, you know, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac and other things of that sort. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, Joseph, who introduces um, Abraham's uh, family to his children to um, to Egypt, and they spend 400 years in Egypt. And then under Moses's uh, leadership um, and through God's miraculous intervention, they escape from Egypt in what's known as the Exodus. They travel through the the desert, they wander in the desert for 40 years until in fact, all of that generation has died off with the exception of two men, um, of Joshua and Caleb. And then under Joshua's leadership, um, they enter the promised land. Um, and then there follows a period of, of war where they're, they're fighting against the other, um, tribes, the, the Canaanites and other tribes that inhabit that land. Um, eventually, the Israelites, they want a king. They get Saul um, of the tribe of Benjamin, but Saul does not listen to God, does not obey him. And so God decides to get rid of Saul's dynasty and instead um, give the, the kingdom to David. Um, so David becomes king of all of Israel. He is a model king. Um, as we might see later, he's a, a figure of Jesus Christ. Um, David's son Solomon expands his, his kingdom, um, but unfortunately falls into idolatry towards the end of his life. And God punishes the idolatry of Solomon by dividing his, his kingdom um, after his death, when, when his son Robum comes to the throne. As we mentioned already, um, the 12 
tribes of Israel, they split into two separate kingdoms, the northern one of Israel, uh, including 10 of the 12 tribes, and then the southern one of Judah. Um, the kingdom of Israel gets um, sent into exile by the Assyrians in 722 BC. Um, they, they never come back and they're known as the lost tribes of Israel. Then in 586 uh, BC, the Babylonians uh, capture and take into captivity the kingdom of, of Judah. Um, but some 70, roughly 70 years later, um, King Cyrus, the uh, Persian, I believe, allows them to return to, um, to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple. And this is what's known as the second temple period. So there's two in, in Jewish histories. There's two temple periods. There's the first temple built by Solomon um, and destroyed by the Babylonians, by King Nebuchadnezzar. And then there's the second temple period, which begins with their return from exile and with the permission to rebuild the temple and continues all the way until the destruction of that temple, second temple in 70 AD. Um, so the, the, the Jews, the the kingdom of, of Judah, former kingdom of Judah, uh, those people are permitted to return to their land to rebuild the Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Um, uh, that's around 520 um, BC that the temple is rebuilt. Um, and things continue more or less calmly until, um, well, there's Alexander the Great who conquers that that entire area and um after his death it's um the, his empire is, is divided among um four of his generals if i recall well um and so there's going to be a, a greek ruler in um in egypt and another greek ruler in um I, I'm blanking right now, but somewhere more north of the, the, the Holy Land, north and east, perhaps. Um, pardon me, I'm, I'm just blanking on that. Anyway, so there's two uh, Greek rulers, and um, the Jews find themselves trapped between these, rival, these rivals um, who represent you know, parts of the Greek empire. And uh, one of them, one of these rulers, his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. He's going to start trying to force uh, Greek culture on the Jews, um, make them convert, so to speak, to uh, Greek polytheism, to abandon their religious practices, abandon the law of, of Moses. And um, this is around the year 167 BC. And so this is the era of the Maccabees. The Maccabees are, um, they are, if I recall well, members of the, uh, of the priestly caste mm -hmm. um, who um, rise up against this forced Hellenization and uh, start conducting a guerrilla warfare um, to fight back against the uh, Hellenizers, and they end up obtaining a certain amount of liberty for, for the Jewish people. Um, and then, um, but that only lasts so long, and eventually, anyways, the Romans uh, take control. They, they overthrow the Greek Empire, and so from around 63 BC onwards. Uh, it's no longer the, the, the Greeks who are in charge of, of that territory, but it's now the Romans. And Judea becomes basically a Roman province, like a little, a little kingdom, which is dependent itself upon the Roman Empire. Um, and um, that's where we are at the time that, that Jesus Christ comes. Um, the Jewish people has lived through many, many vicissitudes. They've been oppressed by the Egyptians. They've been oppressed by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, the Medes and Persians, the Greeks. And finally, it's the Roman Empire 
which is which is uh, holding them in subjection at the time of our, our Lord's coming. And, and it is fascinating, even though they are the chosen people, even though they are the preferred race um, in uh, up until this time, um, God still allows a great amount of suffering. Um, and even then, another way of looking at it is. God is giving them so many promises and he's there and he's, um, you know, present in their life in a lot of ways. And then they still fall. Like, so there's always this cycle of being punished and then being forgiven and then messing up and then coming back to the fold. And it's it, the whole Old Testament is very, very cyclical. Yes, for sure. For sure. And if I can comment on that, um, I think there's there's kind of a twofold lesson in that fact. Um, one is it's, it's simply teaching a, a lesson about the fragility of human nature, um, how easily we fail to keep our good resolutions, fall back into sin. Um, but also, if we look at just the frequency with which this happens, you know, like if you were just to compare, for example, how many good um, kings were there in in the history of Israel? Um, versus the bad ones. How many ones worship the true God versus how many ones worshiped um, pagan gods or, or uh, violated all the, the, the precepts of the Mosaic law? Well, the good ones are just a handful and, and the bad ones are the, the, the great, great majority. Um, and uh, so this is, this is kind of a subtle indication that once again, um, this, this religion is just a provisory measure. It's a preparation for the, the solution which is to come. Um, because it's not enough for the law of God to be written in stone tablets, uh, the, the tablets that were given to Moses and then, you know, put in an ark for safekeeping. Um, that law needs to be written on people's hearts. It needs to be given to them in such a way that with the knowledge of their obligations, they're also given, um, the grace, uh, that is to say the light inspiration strength necessary to put the law into practice. And so God allows his, his people, his chosen people, to continually fall back into idolatry and into other kinds of sins throughout pretty much all of their history um, uh, for, among other reasons, simply to show that, that, in fact, God has not yet given the full solution. He's given knowledge of the law, but he's not yet given um, in its fullness the grace which is, which is necessary to accomplish the law. Yeah, it's fascinating. All right, let, let's look at today's Judaism. This has been the history of Judaism up until the the point of the uh, Romans taking control and and eventually the destruction of the temple. But what is what does Judaism look like uh, post New Testament or in the New Testament? Well, sure. Um, so we already mentioned this profound transfiguration of their way of practicing their religion um, with the destruction of the temple in seventy A.D. Um, because the Jewish religious worship, their liturgy was built around sacrifice, animal sacrifice, um, which could only be done, be done in the temple. Um, it's in somewhere in Deuteronomy, I believe that, that Moses says, you know, when you enter into the land, which has been given to you, um, you will not worship wherever you want, but only in that one place, which, which God will show to you. And, and the history of the Jews shows that, that, that was the temple in Jerusalem. So that's the basis of their prohibition to offer sacrifice anywhere else. Now, since the Romans destroyed the temple and, and sent the Jews once again into exile, and they've never been able to rebuild that temple, they've never had access to it again. Um, 
the nature of the religion has been profoundly changed uh, in as much as they can no longer offer all these sacrifices which are commanded in the Mosaic law. Uh, and instead of, instead of the temple being the, the center of the religious life, it's the whatever is the local synagogue. Um, it's in a, in a sense, and this is maybe not accidental, it's kind of like the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism, where Catholicism is centered around sacrifice in this case, it's the renewal of our Lord's sacrifice. And then Protestantism, in, in losing that sacrifice and denying it, um, now their, their religious life is centered around, you know, informal meetings where there's a kind of self-appointed wise person, someone instructed in the scriptures who preaches a sermon to them. Um, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Um, but uh, it's you could almost say that it's it's like the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism, the, the difference between um, ancient Judaism which would be like Catholicism, it's, it's centered around sacrifice. And then modern Ju- Judaism, which has been deprived of, of sacrifice for some almost 2,000 years now. Um, so that's the first major difference. Um, and then, um, well, with this came eventually splits in uh, or, or schisms uh, in the way that Jews practice their religion. Um so there is what we call Orthodox Judaism, which is basically um, an, 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 an attempt, an effort to faithfully continue Judaism as it existed, you know, in the first century, uh, you know, minus, minus the practice of, of offering sacrifice. So it's, it's um, basically ancient Judaism minus the practice of sacrifice, okay. and it still looks forward to a coming Messiah. It still takes seriously and literally the prophecies concerning a, a future Redeemer. Okay. Um, now, um, so there's that. That's what we call Orthodox Judaism. Um, one other problem with this, um, besides the destruction of the temple, I mentioned that there are many Jews who claim to descend from Aaron, um, and even in modern times, there's genetic testing, which has been invented to give at least some probability of that descendants, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Um, but they're no longer able to prove their descendants by genealogies because with the um, destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the, the exile of the Jewish people, um, this time those genealogical records were lost definitively. Mm-hmm. Um so that's another theological problem for the Orthodox Jews, um, although maybe less less problematic than the destruction of the temple, um, because there certainly are still descendants of Aaron, um, and they have oral traditions as to who who is a descendant of Aaron. Um, that's it's they they operate based on presumption of priestly descent, um, but back in the day, in the time of Ezra, who, who was influential in leading the Jews back to Jerusalem after their Babylonian captivity. So this is, you know, um, 6th century BC. Back in those times, it was required to be a functioning priest to have a, a written genealogy. And uh, when it was discovered that some of the priests, self-identifying priests, didn't have their genealogies, Ezra basically removed them from their, their priestly functions. So, so this is another challenge to modern Judaism, is even if they were able to um, get the temple back, um, they no longer have their genealogical records of priestly descent. Um, so in practice, they would probably just content themselves with their, their informal oral traditions, but that's another, another interesting point. Um, so that's Orthodox Judaism. Um, then there's Reform Judaism, which was founded in Germany in the 19th century. Um, and it's like a hybrid of Judaism and modernism. 
Um, it rejects the idea of a personal Messiah. And um, the Reform Jews are strongly influenced by Spinoza, who was a Jewish philosopher. Um, I believe that Spinoza was actually excommunicated by his local synagogue because he, he basically he espoused a kind of uh, pantheism. Um, mm-hmm. So his viewpoints were obviously not compatible with, with Orthodox Judaism. Um, but as modernism gained grounds, especially in, in Germany uh, in the 19th century, um, larger number numbers of Jews um, were influenced by Spinoza um, and adopted this, this kind of strange hybrid religion that we call Reform Judaism. Um, as I mentioned, they, they reject the notion of a personal Messiah um, and they don't have any interest in rebuilding the temple or reinstituting the the priesthood of Aaron. Um, And then finally you have kind of middle of the road conservative Judaism, which is not as, um, you know, rigid or legalistic as Orthodox Judaism, um, but it still has respect for Jewish tradition um, and tries to maintain the kind of middle road between these other two Jewish factions. Um, So these are the three three schools of Judaism in terms of those Jews who actually believe. Obviously, um, the the term Jew, it, it, there's a certain ambiguity there because it can refer to the religion and those who, who you know, believe and practice certain doctrines. Mm-hmm. Um, but it can also refer simply to the lineage, the offspring of Abraham. Sure. Um, and so there's many people who trace their descendants to Abraham who identify as Jews ethnically, culturally, um, but who don't actually believe in God at all. They're, they're, many of them are just materialists, rationalists. Um, probably the great majority of the, the Jewish people ethnically no longer has belief in, in God. So, sort, sort of like uh, folks in, you know, like France, Mexico, historically yeah. very Catholic countries, they still consider themselves Catholic, but, you know, yeah. it's culturally it's only. Really. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. Good. Uh, that's fascinating. Um, all right. So now let's get into some of the analysis, Father. Uh, if if you're good, if you want to keep going. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's just let's, let's do it. Let's keep going. <laughs> all right. Um, let's get into the analysis part of it. That's the that's the history. That's that's the uh, the, the Jewish religion as it exists today. Um, like you said at the very beginning of this, there they they had the truth. There was truth, um, and. So to play devil's advocate, if, uh, if, if it was true and God does not change, then why is it not still true, Father? What is, uh, what, what's the problem with being Jewish? Well, to be honest, it's just a question of timing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, God, God instituted Judaism as a kind of provisional solution, as I said. It's a religion which of its very essence looks forward to a coming promised Redeemer. And so once the Redeemer promised by God comes and there is a culpable rejection on the part of of the the chosen people, um, their religion turns from being true to being false. Um, And and that's true as well regarding, let's say, well, there, there are many laws, there are many truths which Jesus Christ uh, made known, which he promulgated. He taught us, for example, about the Holy Trinity, um, that in, although there's only one God, as Judaism acknowledges, there are three divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Um, and so it's one thing to be in ignorance of that in the Old Testament, because it's simply a, a doctrine that God has not yet revealed explicitly. Um, and so a religion 
which at that time did not confess explicitly a faith in the in the Holy Trinity, that could be a true religion because at the time that doctrine had not yet been revealed. Um, but once the doctrine is revealed that that in God there are three divine persons, once you reject that that doctrine, which has been revealed, um, to it's one thing to be ignorant ignorant of it because it hasn't been revealed. revealed I'm sorry, revealed yet, um, and it's quite another thing to. Um, have been familiarized with the teaching and to reject it consciously. Mm. Um, and so modern Judaism rejects the Messiah, rejects uh, the teachings promulgated by him, rejects the new law. Um, and it's because of these rejections that the modern Jewish religion is, is not true. Okay. Um, yeah. So that's the short of it, but um, maybe we can, I mean, we have to, while criticizing modern Judaism, we have to, as we've already done, acknowledge the the good that is there the fact notably that it was once the true religion sure. um and unlike all the other religions uh of its time which were polytheists which were um which taught all kinds of you know gross uh uh disgusting moral practices um judaism at the time was was a light in the darkness it was uh it was something beautiful it was really god manifesting himself to the world um, but he chose to do so in a, in a gradual way. Um, and Judaism was just, uh, as I said, that that first provisional step. Um, if we look at modern Judaism, we've already mentioned the problems with there being no temple, no sacrifice, um, no possibility of exercising the Aaronic priesthood. Um, there's also been no miracles or visible signs of God's accompaniment. Um if we look at the what what Christians called the Old Testament, um, the history of the Jewish people up until the coming of, of Christ, we find that their whole history is interspersed with, um, yes, some times of um, you know darkness and and where there's no no miracles and no prophecies. For sure, there were periods of even hundreds of years where where God seemed to be silent, but but it, those periods were always followed by um, God manifesting Himself anew. Um, God, God worked miracles through the hand of Moses, but also later on through prophets such as, um, Elias and, and Eliseus, or if you want Elisha and, and well, Elisha, I don't know how to say their names and, <laughs> um, but, uh, through the prophet Isaiah, through, through, um, God, God worked great miracles and God continually consoled his, his people with, uh, with prophecy. But um, since the coming of Jesus Christ, where are the miracles? Where are the prophecies? Um, it's a long time to pass, 2,000 years, without any new manifestation of, of God's presence, of his accompaniment. So that, that's a big question mark, which, which you know, right, rightly hangs over modern Judaism, just as it, as it hangs over Protestantism. Um, mm-hmm. Protestantism pretends that God was with his people. God was with the church for the first few centuries. And then you have a period of you know, 1200 years until the coming of Martin Luther, that, that God just lets the church, uh, fall apart, collapse, uh, be filled with false doctrines. Um, so that's a real, that's hard to reconcile with God's providence. Um, how can you say that God would simply step back and allow the true religion or allow his chosen people to pass centuries and centuries, even millennia, um, without intervening in their history? Um, Whereas and, and, if we look, yeah, go ahead. And, and there was, and, and when the temple was in existence, especially, you know, the, 
the, the first temple, there was the Shekinah. There was the presence of God in the temple, mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. manifested by visible signs. And then there was the Shekinah left. And, and there mm-hmm. are references in Judaism to the, the, the idea that, uh, that, that God left the temple and left them, left them alone. And this is before our Lord came onto the scene. Um, yeah. and, and they saw this, oh, this is a great tragedy. God has left us again. All right, we need to do something. Well, now it's been mm-hmm. more than 2000 years since that presence has been there. So again, something's wrong. It's, it's never yes. gone that long. The presence of God never left the, the Jewish people for that long. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, so that, that's, that's fully, fully correct. Um, there should be a little question mark in any, any Jew's mind saying, you know, why? I mean, I can understand, yes, uh, a, a short period of probation where God seems to be silent. Yes, that's possible, but, but not such a long time as we're looking at. Um, and on the other hand, you have the coming of, of the promised Redeemer, um, Jesus Christ. And then um, with him comes, once again, miracles and prophecies. Um, and we find in the, in the Catholic church, a continuous, um, you know, there's, there's never, uh, a long, long period of time that passes without there being some saints who work miracles and manifest God's, uh, presence in, in his church. Um, so that's, what's missing from modern Judaism. It's missing from Protestantism. Um, but God, God has always from the beginning of revelation, um, until, until our days, he's never left, um, the true religion without the, without miracles. Um, right. So, you know, we see that in the lives of the saints. We see that in Eucharistic miracles. Um, and that simply doesn't exist in, in Judaism or Protestantism or any of the other religions that, that claim to be real, um, that claim to represent the, the, the true religion revealed by God. What is it, so, what is it that the Jewish people believe about the Messiah? There seems to be, and, and, and we saw this, and, and I think maybe we'll talk about it today, but but we saw in our, in earlier apologetics episodes about the, the proofs that Jesus was who he said he was. Um, mm-hmm. What is what is the argument on the Jewish side of things that Jesus was not the Messiah? Hmm. Well, um, I think that my my knowledge of modern Judaism would perhaps have to be deeper for me to fully answer that question. It's certainly one that deserves to be answered. Um, I imagine that that book that I mentioned by um, Bar, um, what's his name again? Um, Aiton Bar, mm-hmm. refuting rabbinic objections to Christianity and messianic prophecies. I imagine there may be good answers in there. Um, one thing that that is, you know, pretty commonplace that we we all know about is that many of the Jews were expecting a Messiah who would um, satisfy their their longing for earthly prosperity by freeing them from the. Um, the yoke of the Roman Empire, making them once again an independent nation, and even giving them dominance, political dominance, over all the other kingdoms of the earth. Mm. Um, and if one were to interpret um, certain messianic prophecies in the Old Testament in a very literalistic way, that's what it would seem to be. Um, there, there are many passages, messianic prophecies, that have to be taken figuratively, um, because it speaks, for example, of, of the city of Jerusalem extending. I think this is in, in the, the prophecies of Isaiah. Um, um, Jerusalem being extended to include and to hold all the, the nations of the earth. Um, and if we're speaking of a physical city, that's simply a, an impossibility. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already spoken of these 
these um, you know, practical difficulties with imagining Judaism as simply extending itself through the whole world as it is with the Mosaic law, with, with sacrifice in the temple of Jerusalem. Um, I mean, I think that Josephus says that at, in the first century, um, there were some 20,000 uh, Jewish priests uh, living in Jerusalem uh, and the surrounding area who were on active duty. But because there's only one temple, one place of sacrifice, how are 20,000 priests supposed to uh, divide up that that work, that labor? Right. Um, in fact, what they ended up doing was if you're a priest, you would have, I think, just two periods during the year where for a week or two, you could go in and offer sacrifice. Um, but the rest of the year, you'd just be off duty. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of a, a plush job. That's that's why we see that the, the Sadducees, um, which are kind of like the priestly ruling class of the time, um, they were very materialistic. Um, because that's, that's kind of the natural result of only being on duty, <laughs> uh, yeah. a few weeks out of the year and the whole, the whole year you're supported, um, your, your material needs are provided for by all the offerings that, that the Jewish faithful make at the temple. Um, but, but you have nothing to do. You have no job. Um, so if there were already problems with, with that sacrifice system, um, when it only included the Jewish people, how are you supposed to expand that to the whole world? Um, Anyways, sorry, that's a digression because to go back to the the main point, um, many Jews were expecting then uh, a Messiah who would give them uh, deliverance from their earthly enemies um, and establish a a political dominance of Israel over the whole world. And because Christ didn't do that, um, they were sorely disappointed. Um, And we see in the gospels that often, you know, people try to make, uh, our Lord, their, their political King, they want to crown him. For example, after he's multiplied the loaves and fed, you know, 5,000 people, not mm-hmm. counting women and children. Um, they, they try to crown him and he has to run away. Um, so that's, that's certainly one reason. Um, and another reason is, is that, uh, well, Jesus Christ was not afraid to, um, call out the the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, for their oops, sorry, for their for their hypocrisy, um, for their their errors, their <coughs> their um, their their pride, their vanity, um, and so that's a good way to get yourself rejected is if you uh, fearlessly call out people's uh, failings, their their vices. Yeah, um, that helps to explain why our Lord was rejected by his contemporaries. Um, but then also, you know, why he was rejected by Jews throughout the century centuries. Part of it is that, that there is this tendency of the Jewish people to want to see everything materially in terms of temporal benefits. Um, and, uh, so when our Lord preaches a spiritual kingdom, um, a kingdom, which is not of this earth, that's hard for the Jews to accept. Yeah. Well, and, and it is, it's especially, I think frustrating from our point of view, where we look at uh, we we look at all of the prophecies, we look at everything, you know, all this anticipation that the Messiah was going to be coming, um, you know, the prophecies of even non non Jewish writers talking about this that there was this supposed to be this big event coming, uh, and our Lord our Lord fit the bill um, fairly perfectly, and so it's just. Again, there's that frustration there that's like, oh, you guys were so close. You had it right there. Yes. Yes. Well, that's why, I mean, we can't really let the the Jews, especially of our Lord's time, off the hook for their rejection of the Messiah. I mean, if, if this is the one promised by God, God is going to um, 
let there be sufficient uh, signs, sufficient evidence that this is this is the one. Um, and since since that's the case, um, their rejection of our Lord is is certainly not without fault. It's it's and it's something that the apostles are going to reproach them with. Um, we look at the Saint Peter's. Uh, sermon on Pentecost Sunday, and he goes out and he says to the Jews, "Well, look, you you have to repent because your leaders just crucified the Son of God made man, <laughs> the Messiah yeah. that we've been waiting for for thousands of years. You just messed it up. You just crucified him. Yeah. So uh, it's time to say you're sorry. Um, that's a that's a huge mistake. It's hard to imagine a bigger mistake than that. Right. Um, and it's not to make fun of the Jews. It's not to just point a finger and say, ha ha, you guys messed up. Um, but, but if they want to convert, the first step is, is to have the humility to say, yep, um, you know, we made a mistake. Maybe not me personally, if you're, if you're a contemporary sure. Jew, you weren't there at the time. Um, and maybe you would have done better. Uh, but, but, uh, the Jewish people, uh, as a whole, um, the, the, the majority of them, unfortunately made this, this very grave error. Yeah. All right. We, we've teased this a few times, Father. And, and again, we've talked about it a little bit, but just to be complete um, and just to, to show the, the perfect, again, fulfillment of, of our Lord in, in the prophecies, can we look at some of those Old Testament prophecies and see how they are going to be looking forward to uh, the, the, the life of Christ, the actions of Christ, the divinity of Christ, etc.? Absolutely. So um, we can see that there is, first of all, uh, this promise made to Abraham that in his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Um, and so that, that, you know, that speaks of a coming redeemer, someone who will bring a blessing to uh, counter or to overcome the curse that comes to us from Adam. Um, and that it's for once again, all the nations of the earth. Um, now, so we know then that the, the promised redeemer will be a, a descendant of Abraham um, and then it's made clear that it's uh, through Isaac, uh, through Jacob, that he will come. And then finally, we, we see that it's from the tribe of Judah that he has to come. When Jacob gives his final blessing to all of his children, um, he in blessing Judah, he says that the, um, the scepter will not leave Judah until he comes, who is um, um, the, the one who is promised. Um, or to whom it until he comes to whom it belongs, um, he to whom the scepter of Judah belongs, um, and in, in him all the nations of the earth shall hope. Uh, I don't have the text in front of me, so I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. um, but but that indicates that the Messiah is going to come from Judah, and he's going to come from Judah at a time when the scepter passes from Judah, um, which is interesting because we see that um, it is the tribe of Judah which rules over the rest of Israel um, under King David, King Solomon. They are from the tribe of Judah. Um, and then they, they continue to rule um, over the lower kingdom until the Babylonian exile. But then they come back and they reestablish a certain political independence under the, under the Maccabees. So you can say that um, the, the scepter or the power of ruling has still not definitively passed from the tribe of Judah. Um, because under the Maccabees, they continue to um, have some political independence uh, and to rule themselves. And so this only comes definitively to an end at around the time of Jesus Christ, um, mm -hmm. with the um, you know the the destruction of the of Jerusalem of the temple by the Romans. At that point, the the Jews are no longer going to um, rule themselves, have political autonomy for you know the next two thousand years approximately. Um, 
you know, that's if you take the modern state of Israel as being in some sense, a continuation of that. Um, so that, that certainly the timing fits there. Um, the, the scepter or the power of ruling is passing from Judah at the time that, that, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, who's of the tribe of Judah comes and he's going to, um, rule not over a political kingdom, but over a spiritual kingdom, which is the church. Um, so he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. And then we see later on that he's going to be a son of David. Um, you know, there are, when God promises, um, certain things to Dave, David concerning Solomon, um, that Solomon, his son will be, uh, like a, a son to, to God and God will be to Solomon, like a father. Um, uh, he says certain things of Solomon, which can't be taken true in a literal sense of Solomon, but which have to be understood of the, the future Messiah in saying, for example, that his, you know, uh, kingdom shall last forever. Um, and later on, there will be prophets who speak of, you know, long after King David is dead, they speak of David ruling over his people once more. Um, like uh, that, there are prophecies about that in, in Ezekiel, where where Ezekiel, and, and he um, prophesied during the Babylon, Babylonian captivity. He speaks of God reuniting Israel under David, his servant, and David, my servant, will feed you know his people forever. Um, so the, there are clear indications that the Messiah has to come from the tribe of David, which is the case, obviously, with with Jesus Christ. Um, or he has to come from; he has to be an, uh, an offspring of David, and we see that with the genealogies that are given in the Gospels of of Matthew and Luke, um, that Jesus of Nazareth does indeed come from the the tri- from the family of David. Hmm. Um, so that's prophecies concerning his genealogy. And we see that that's one of his titles too, son of David, he's often called. Um, and then about the time, I already mentioned this, this kind of time correlation with the scepter passing from Judah. Um, and that's contained in the blessing that Jacob gives to Judah um, before his death. That's at the end of the book of Genesis. Um, but we find also indications of the timing with uh, the prophet Daniel. Very, very interesting. And Daniel Two and I think it's in Daniel nine. Um, there are prophecies about a succession of empires, uh, four different empires, which seem pr- pretty clearly to match up with the Babylonian Empire, um, the Empire of the Persians and Medes, the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire. And the last of these four empires is going to be destroyed um, and give place to an empire that God Himself will establish, which will last forever and which will rule over all nations. And so that also lines up very well with the coming of Christ because um, Jesus Christ comes during the the reign of the Roman Empire and then that empire is um, basically converted into the the universal rule of of the church. Um, The the church puts its roots down in the dying Roman Empire and Rome becomes the center of, of a new spiritual empire which lasts forever and which spreads over the whole earth. Um, so those prophecies of Daniel are very interesting. There's also the famous prophecy of the 70 weeks of years in Mm -hmm. Daniel chapter seven. Um, and, uh, there's supposed to be seven weeks of years. That is to say 490 years from the giving of permission to rebuild the temple to the, the coming of the Christ. Um, and it's prophesied that the Christ will be slain. He'll be cut off. And, um, also the, uh, city and its temple will be destroyed. Um, and if we look at, um, how things line up, there's a decree of, um, one of the, um, Persian emperors, Xerxes, I think, or Artaxerxes, something or other, um, 
which was which permitted the Jews to um, rebuild their temple, and that that um, the date of that decree is approximately 490 years before the death of Christ, around 33 AD. Mm. Um, so it's it's quite interesting to see how that that timeline matches up very well, um, and. Um, Obviously, the Jews were aware of this. They were following these prophecies, especially those of Daniel, and expecting uh, the imminent coming of a Messiah. We have we have many indications of that. Um, if we take the, the writings of the New Testament, obviously for a, a Jew, they wouldn't a Jew would not consider them to be inspired, but a Jew could at least regard them as as historically reliable as having a, a foundation in history. And it's very clear that in the writings of the New Testament. Um, that there was this general expectation of, of a Messiah, of a Redeemer. But we also find the same thing reflected in uh, the writings of, of pagan authors. Um, like I think it's Suetonius, one of the Roman historians, who says that, yes, at that time there was a conviction that had spread about throughout all of the East that um, you know a great king would come from, from Judea and he would, he would rule over, he would dominate you know, the whole empire, the whole world. Um, Suetonius speaks of that. Um, I'm trying to remember if Tacitus does too. Um, but there are certainly multiple pagan, uh, sources who attest to that widespread expectation of an, the imminent coming of a redeemer on the part of the Jews and, and the Eastern peoples in general. Wow. That is fascinating. That is, um, yeah, it's just it, all, all the pieces seem, seem to line up. And, and again, we're, mm-hmm. Like we've seen with all these other, uh, like like with all the other religions we've been looking at, it's just you simply pray that 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 the grace is going to take effect in their hearts, and that and they'll they'll be able to see it for sure. And if I can mention, so that's that's just some prophecies concerning um, the the origin of the Messiah. That is, you know, who, who will he be a descendant of? Um, he'll be a son of David. Um, concerning the timing of his coming. Um, I should mention that um, it was prophesied that there would be a new covenant. This is Jeremiah 31. Um, and this, this also ties in with the idea that the Old Testament was was a temporary dispensation, a temporary measure. Um, Jeremiah 31, uh, Behold, the days shall come, saith the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, the covenant which they made void. Um, and we also have, uh, uh, let's say, a prophecy in the book of Malachi or Malachius um, concerning um, a, a universal priesthood that extends beyond the Jews. Um, in that prophecy, it said that in every place, a clean offering is made to God and, and his name is, is great among the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Um, the prophet Isaiah says that God will take into himself priests from among, among the nations so those prophecies seem clearly in, to indicate a radical transformation of of the Jewish religion, um, where it's made truly universal, and there's a new covenant, not like the old one. Right. Um, so those prophecies are very relevant. Um, but yeah, and, and there's many other prophecies that could be cited. This is something you know. Once again, for for a Jew, um, read read the New Testament. You'll find many of many Old Testament passages cited, particularly in, in the, um, the Gospel of St. Matthew. Um, but aside from the prophecies, another thing which we shouldn't overlook and which might be good to conclude with is the, the beautiful figures in the Old Testament, um, uh, which, which fit the coming Redeemer perfectly. Um, we have, you know, just to mention a few of the most striking 
um, we have this sacrifice um, of Isaac. I think the, the Jews call it the binding of Isaac, um, where God asks Abraham to sacrifice his beloved son. Um, uh, the, this is the language that God uses. I think it's even your only son um, that, that God says. Um, you're going to sacrifice him in the place that I show you. So, you know, um, Abraham goes, he travels three days, he goes up to Mount, Mount Moriah. Um, and Isaac, it's, 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 uh, the details are there in, in the scripture. Isaac is, um, you know, asked by Abraham to carry the wood of the sacrifice up the mountain, um, which is a striking image of, well, first of all, obviously, um, God, the father is, is, um, sacrificing in a, in a certain sense, his son, um, because Jesus Christ is the son of the father. Um, so Abraham is, is an image of God, the father, Jesus, or Isaac is an image of, of, uh, Jesus Christ, God, the son. Um, and then obviously Isaac carrying the wood up the mountain is like Christ carrying the wood of the cross, um, up, uh, the Mount, uh, Calvary. And um, the the fact that the wood, which is very heavy, is laid on the back of Isaac also shows that um, Isaac at the time was not like a little boy of like five or six years, as he's often represented in, in religious images. Right. Um, but he's a young man, um, a strong young man. And uh, this indicates very strongly that his... Um, sacrifice when he when he was bound by abraham and laid on the the wood altar to be you know killed and then uh, offered as a burnt offering um this is something that he accepted voluntarily um because being a young man capable of carrying all that wood up the mountain abraham being very old um surely isaac could have successfully resisted his father and escaped and that's something which is noted and acknowledged by jewish authors like josephus mm-hmm. um so that's a really striking image um of, um, of Christ's sacrifice. And, uh, God says to Abraham after he, he shows his willingness to do this, that, that God repeats to him this, this promise that in his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So it's, it's a very clear foreshadowing of, of Christ's sacrifice. And in, indeed Mount Moriah is considered to be the same mountain as that of Sinai. Um, this is even mentioned in, I think it's first Chronicles or first Paralipomenon, um, as uh, the, the names differ, but, um, it's mentioned elsewhere in the, um, in the old Testament, the Jewish Bible, that this is the same mountain. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus Christ will be sacrificed basically maybe on a different part, but, but basically on the same mountain where that sacrifice of Isaac had been offered. Yeah. Um, but but then we have perhaps the most detailed and, and striking images in the history of the Exodus. Um, obviously, the Paschal Lamb um, is is an apt figure of Christ um, because it's the blood of the Lamb spread on the doorpost, which saves the Israelites from God's you know uh, justice, which He executes on on the the pagans, on the on the Egyptians. Um, and it's precisely the blood of Christ, the true Paschal lamb, which saves us from God's just, uh, anger. Um, and this lamb is sacrificed to be eaten. Um, just like our Lord is sacrificed to become our spiritual food in the Eucharist. Um, there are many details too, which we can't all go into, but the, the for example, the Paschal lamb, um, is only to be eaten by, um, Israelites, uh, who have to, or by those who are circumcised. Um, if you're not circumcised, um, you can't eat it, obviously speaking of, of the men. Um, 
and the 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 meat uh, the 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 flesh of the lamb can't be carried outside of the house it has to be eaten in the house um which is like an image of the eucharist which can only be partaken of by the baptized baptism being like the the new circumcision and uh only by those who are in the house of the the true church founded by christ um so that's very very beautiful um and then the crossing of the red sea um, which happens the third day, the morning of the third day after the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb. If you look at the chronology, um, it's it's like Christ's resurrection. Um, the the enemies of the chosen people are destroyed um, by the waters of the Red Sea after their crossing, and you know Christ um, by his death and resurrection, he brings us victory over our spiritual enemies over sin. Um, and the, when the, the Jewish people emerged from the waters of the Red Sea, um, before they crossed that sea, they were not yet a free people. They were still in bondage. But once they crossed and came out of those waters, they are their own people, a sovereign people, and now apt to receive God's law. Um, it's, it's not by accident that God gives his law to them after they've emerged from the, from the waters, after their independence and liberation, not before. Um, and likewise, um, it's through, so there's kind of a double image here. Um, it's through the waters of baptism, um, that the, the, the true people of God, the new people of God is formed, the, the church, um, the church emerges from the waters of baptism. It is precisely baptism, which makes one to be a member of the church. Um, and, and then it's the church which receives the law of God, which is the Holy ghost coming down on, on Pentecost engraving the law of God in, in the heart. Um, so, um, you know, and so the, the giving of the law on Sinai, which is about 50, 50 days after the crossing of the Red Sea corresponds well to, um, the Pentecost, the descent of the Holy ghost about 50, 50 days after, uh, exactly 50 days after our, our Lord's resurrection. Um, you have the manna in the desert, which is once again, a figure of the, the Eucharist. It's the, the people's daily bread, which sustains them on their voyage. Um, the promised land, it's, it's a figure of heaven. Um, and what's very striking is that Moses who represents, um, the Jewish people, the old law, um, Moses, um, despite being this great prophet who's worked all these miracles, um, who's given this people their law, um, he is not allowed to enter the promised land. He dies before being able to enter. And it's only Joshua, whose name is is also Jesus. There, there are two versions of the same name. Right. It's only Joshua who is able, um, as the successor of Moses, as the new Moses, that's only he who's able to lead the people finally into the promised land, um, which is an, obviously an, a figure of how the Jewish law of itself could not lead the people of God into heaven. Mm. Uh, the chosen people. Um, it's only the new law um, of Christ, the the new Moses, which is able to finally bring them, uh, bring bring us into uh, eternal life. Yeah, Moses, um, Moses Jesus is like a so new far. Joshua, Jesus, exactly. Yeah, I exactly. never considered that. That's brilliant. Okay, <laughs> I'm surprised it's not in that introduction to the Old Testament. It's got to be in there somewhere. <laughs> Maybe I missed it. I might have missed it. But yeah, okay. that's great. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. It's it's that's really striking. I mean, because there's no one more important to the Jews than than Moses. He is. Right. It's even in uh, I think Deuteronomy at the end after he dies it says you know no prophet has ever you know arisen like Moses. Um, he he is the be all and end all of the Jewish religion, and yet 
you know, God does not allow him to enter the promised land. It's a clear sign that this is, uh, this, this, this religion of Moses can only get you so far. It can get you right up to the, the border of the promised land, but you can't cross unless you uh, put yourself under le- the leadership of Moses' successor, Joshua, who is also Jesus. Um, it's, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, there was something else I wanted to say, but, um, oh, yeah. Um, so we have um, in the the tabernacle, the testimony, the, 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 the kind of... Um, tent where the Jews worshiped during their wandering in the desert. And then later on in the temple of Solomon, we have this threefold division uh, of the tabernacle later of the temple. Um, And note that the sacrifices are offered not in the Holy of Holies, um, but they're offered outside of it. Um, And uh, you have the, the Ark of the the covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies. Um, outside of it, you'll remind me, Andrew, cause I'm, I may blank on this, but there's the, uh, menorah, there's the seven branch candle, and then there's also the altar of incense. Um, but no, the, the Holy of Holies is, um, uh, rests beyond the veil. Right. And so the, the, in other words, the Jewish sacrifices, which were offered in, in the outside, in the outer court or the, the bloodless, the unbloody sacrifices were offered in that in the Holy, but not in the Holy of Holies. They couldn't get you all the way through in other words. Right. Um, and um, where am I going with this? So the, the, the bloody sacrifices they're they're offered in the outer portion um, to signify. And that represents the, the dispensation of the old covenant of the, the, the mosaic religion, which, which doesn't even get you into the Holy and to get into the Holy, you have to offer unbloody sacrifice. It's the incense. It's the, it's the uh, that's right that there's the 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 bread of proposition um, the, the 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 sacrifice of bread and I think wine as well is offered mm-hmm. in that in the holy um, and so that represents the New Testament um, and then the holy of holies is like is is heaven and you have in the holy of holies you have the ark of the covenant which is like God the Father um, God revealing Himself in his in his essence which is which is um, closed off to us. Um, but then in the Holy, you have, um, two things which represent the other persons of the Trinity, the persons who are sent on a mission. You have the, the bread of proposition, which is like a figure of Jesus Christ, the, the bread of life. Um, and then you have the menorah, the seven branched menorah, which is like a figure of the Holy ghost and the, and the seven gifts. So it's, it's like God, the father symbolized by the Ark of the covenant rests always hidden in the Holy of Holies, but then he sends God, the son, and God, the Holy Ghost, who make themselves present in in the church in the new covenant um, through through the Eucharist through um, confirmation, um, and and it's only in well, the, and then there's the the once a year that the uh, high priest is able to enter the holy holies, but in the blood of of uh, of a sacrifice, um, which is figurative of our Lord through his his blood giving us entrance into the holy of holies, which is heaven, which is eternal life. Um, yeah. So there's kind of these three stages, Old Testament uh, being the, the, the exterior um, of the of the tabernacle or of the temple where the bloody sacrifices are offered. That's the Old Testament. And the Holy is um, the is the uh, New Testament where there are unbloody sacrifices and these two objects representing Christ and the Holy Ghost who have been sent by the Father who've come into this world. Um, and then you have the Holy of Holies, which is heaven. Um, so. Once again, these these uh, it's easy for us from a new 
Testament perspective to understand the the symbolism. Um, but but the problem with with modern Jews is that they're missing the key to to how to interpret these things and how to see in them the figures of 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 the Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as we wrap up, Father, what, what other kind of points would you like to make? Uh, I know we're getting a, a little bit long, but there's a, obviously more, more, more than a few millennia to get through. Um, but do you have any closing thoughts on, on, on this topic? Oh, well, um, I guess my main closing thought would be that um, if this is something that interests you, uh, it is such a profound subject um, that, you know, there's no way that even in this long two hour, uh, uh, podcast, we could go through everything. No, not by any means. Um, there's so many figures, so many more prophecies, um, of the old Testament. Um, and so I can only encourage you to go read some of the sources that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. Um, because you'll find, you'll find much more there. Um, and I can only stress for Catholics um, the, the, how much it is worthwhile to read and study the, the Old Testament in, in addition to the New, mm-hmm. um, because we, we understand things in so much more depth, more profundity. Um, I really recommend the writings and conferences of, of Brant Petrie, um, obviously with the caution that, um, well, he is uh, still in a Novus Ordo Milieu, Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't, I can't say that he's 100% reliable, but having listened to, you know, hours and hours of his conferences on the old Testament, I can say that he's very, very traditional minded. Yeah. Um, and so I think that if there are some errors, they're going to be pretty, pretty sparse. Um, yeah. and there's a lot of really good stuff there. So it's, it's, it's a great source. Um, to be used, of course, with with some discretion. You know, if, for example, if, if you're one of the faithful of the SSPX, I'd say, you know, go ahead and listen to his conferences. Um, but just uh, having the back of your mind, he, he is from a Novus Ordo Milieu. So there could be something that if you hear something that sounds a bit strange where you think, well, is, is that actually right? Um, you know, then, then go ahead and ask your local traditional priest, mm-hmm. um, Father, is there any problem with that? Yeah. Um, so with that restriction, I really encourage you to take a look at his his um, conferences and his writings. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Father, again, thank you so much for all your time and and for putting together not just this episode, but the previous ones we've had in the series and and other ones in the past as well. You've helped us out with quite a few of them. So uh, thanks again, Father. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for your patience. You know that whenever it's with me, you're in for a long haul. But, oh, no, uh, good <laughs> I, I always appreciate it. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks, thanks God bless. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic Series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us and God bless you.